0: Let's take our scriptures and open up to the Gospel of Luke, the ninth chapter. Today we'll be beginning in verse 28. So Luke chapter 9, will be there today and then the next couple weeks we'll circle back into chapters 1 and 2 for the remainder of Advent and then we'll end the year in chapter 9 as well before we turn and set our face to Jerusalem with Jesus and to the new year. So a question to begin, would you rather be on a mountain or would you rather be in the valley? Rather be on the mountain? Amen. The Swiss man, I've seen pictures of the Alps. There's another couple up here, um, Bill and Sherry Klingapil, she's from the the West Coast. And Bill grew up here on the East Coast, and he was so excited to show her the mountains of the Appalachian Mountains. And when they were dating, and Sherry came out and so asked, where are they? And, oh, these are not mountains. <laughs> would you rather be on a mountain or would you rather be in the plain? We're here geographically on a hill. So under our new porch there next Sunday, you can just look out and see over the Greenway and Black Dog Salvage and into downtown. So when you're up, you can see further. Um, we had to get away a mountain retreat to Gatlinburg just a few short months ago. We call it a mountain retreat. You never call it a valley retreat or the plain uh, retreat on the plains. Consider this as we come to this text today. Come with me to verse 28. Now, About eight days after these sayings, he took with him, that being Jesus, Peter and John and James, and they went up a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem." Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they came fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came in, overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. This is God's word. We give him thanks for it. Mountain glory. Come with me to verse 28. About eight days after these these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, went up the mountain to pray. First of all, what sayings? And if you were not here last week, we were in these sayings. The foretelling of his suffering and death and resurrection. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He said this plainly. He'll say it two more times, once in chapter 9 and once again in chapter 18. These are startling words because Peter has just confessed him to be the Christ of God. The long-expected Messiah King who now we've left everything to follow is saying he must suffer and die. Why must Jesus Die. How would you answer an unbeliever this question? If God is so great and so good as you say, why couldn't God just excuse or forget your sin? Why all this fuss about Jesus coming from heaven and dying on the cross? How would you answer? I mean, that could be a real sincere Starbucks kind of conversation. It's not antagonistic to the faith. A sincere inquiry. If your God is so good and so great, why couldn't he just excuse away your sin, if that's what we want to call it, these bad things? Why couldn't he just forget it? How would you answer? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and sin deserves death in righteous judgment from God. If God didn't judge sin, God wouldn't be God in the sense of being holy and just. So we've all sinned against God. The wages of sin is death. If God just excuses or forgets our sin, He's showing He's not just. He's showing he's not holy. But if God is holy and just, death has to come as judgment for sin. Then we are all without hope. We are all condemned except if God saves us. How then can God judge sin and save us from sin? How do you answer that question? And this is where we come to the good news of the gospel, that God came in our flesh, the incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth was just not a special boy born. He was God in the flesh, born of a virgin, grew up in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. He suffered, was tempted like us, yet he had no sin. Perfect life which none of us have. He was sinless, and if the wages of sin is death, he deserves nothing. He deserves no death. But in obedience to God the Father and in love to us, Jesus died in the flesh. He was judged in our place. The suffering Savior, the perfect substitute, and all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. So why couldn't God just forget or he would not be holy or just? But God is also love. And so this is both how God judges sin and saves us from sin by the sending of his beloved son. It's by the death of Jesus who was dead and buried. But on the third day, as he foretold and according to Scripture, was raised in the flesh. And do you believe this? Is this your hope, even this first Sunday of Advent, as we've heard the scriptures of hope. But I've already fast-forwarded in Luke's narrative. What other sayings did he have? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, the glory of his Father and his holy angels. But I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So, discipleship we looked at last week is the entirety of our life in relationship to Jesus. To know and follow Jesus, as it says on our yard sign, as it says on our letterhead, is to live in the way of the cross. To not be surprised when suffering comes to our way, but to know that suffering is part of God's plan for us to share in the sufferings of Christ, to walk in the way of the cross. Did you hear, Rosemary? Suffering has many purposes. It creates us endurance, endurance character, character hope. Are you believing the lie that you can follow Jesus and not sacrifice or suffer for his sake? that's what we considered last week. Are we believing the lie that we can love the world and love Jesus at the same time? The disciples have been thinking about these words for about a week. And here he takes Peter, John, and James. It's the way that Luke writes it out. Usually we hear Peter, James, and John. He takes three of the twelve up a mountain to pray. A trio, just three of the twelve, a closer circle. Peter, James, and John, these three fishermen. Two of them are brothers, John and James. Last chapter, Jesus only allowed this trio to go with him in the house as he raised Jairus' daughter up from the dead. The other nine were outside. These three got to see a little girl get raised from the dead. On the night of his betrayal, he'll take the 12 disciples to Gethsemane, but Peter, James, and John will go further into the garden. And here on the mountain, we see these three. Let me not sidetrack too much, but what does this teach us? In Christ's incarnation, he teaches us there's different circles of relational closeness and capacity. You cannot be all things to all people. Jesus can minister to the crowds, he can disciple the twelve, and then he can pour even more into these three. And who are these three? Peter, who's gonna be a leader among the apostles. James is gonna be a leader in the Jerusalem churches, but it's gonna get martyred early on. And then John, who's gonna outlive all the apostles and live a long life, but suffer for Christ's sake. How are we intentional in our relationships to disciple making? And this is, we just gotta look at our master Jesus. You can't be everything to everybody, but there's narrowing circles where you can get more close and more connected. And so I would ask you, who are your 12? And then, who are your three? On this occasion, Jesus is taking Peter, James, and John up a mountain to pray. Earlier in Luke's gospel, we've seen him praying in solitude. Chapter 5, I mean, the crowds, the report about him went abroad. Great crowds gathered to hear him, to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Chapter 6, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Early in his ministry he prayed in solitude to get away from the crowds, but now he's starting to bring along disciples to pray, because that is disciple. Watch as I do, do as I do, teach as I teach. Teach. It's not about learning a subject or a content skill. It's learning the person, his way of life. It's both observation and participation. It's not like you do a class, get a diploma, and you're now a disciple. It's you've got to look at the life of the one who's discipling you. They're watching the life of Jesus. Classes and studies have purpose, but they are not the be-all to Christian formation. We can take a parenting class, or you can share life with godly parents who've raised kids. We've got countless guides, but where are our fathers and mothers in the faith? Paul tells the Corinthians. A pastor in Australia, Tabby and I just talked about him this morning. We have moved from a culture based on hierarchy to peer Ironically, we flee from relational distinction and boundaries, yet without these traditions and boundaries, we've become mired in codependency. Think about it. There's no longer fathers and mothers in the faith. We're, we're all, there's nobody to learn from. We're all just Eve and Stephen. We're just, and what we've become is just codependent on each other. And we need to be learning and being discipled and making disciples. Paul tells Timothy, Go and make disciples, who will then go make disciples. So it happens in shared life, different life seasons, and faith seasons. My question: Who are your twelve? Who are your three? Who is discipling you? Who are you discipling? And if you, you push back and that, like, "Well, I don't," who am I to do this? Why are we trying to blur the lines of some of you have lived so much life you need to pour it out more into others. Some of us have not lived enough life and we need to learn from others, and we need. It's not better or more important. It's just different seasons, both in life and faith, towards discipleship. In two more chapters, the disciples are going to outright asking. You've invited us up the mountain. We've prayed. We've watched you. Lord, teach us to pray. Chapter 11. But here, there's still an observation mode of his discipline of private prayer. Look at verse 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew says it this way, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Mark says, he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Do you remember who else went up a mountain and got pretty shiny? Moses. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, Exodus 34, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. When Moses goes up the mountain, we'd walked, followed you through the Red Sea. He goes up a mountain. There's like clouds and thunders. We're down here making a calf. And he comes down and his face is lit up. And they were scared of him. He had to put a veil over it. Here comes Jesus, the greater Moses, who leads us in the greater exodus out of sin and bondage, who gives us the greater covenant, the covenant of grace, who now has a shiny face on a mountain. This vision is intended to strengthen the Lord's disciples. They've just about heard of his cross and his passion, his self-denial and sufferings. But with grace, they now get a glimpse of glory. I mean, they, the emotional up and down of this past week, you're the Christ of God. I'm going to suffer and die. You're glorious. Just trying to follow him and understand what is going on is there to encourage them. They're getting an example, a glimpse of his future power. And behold, verse 30, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. I like how Luke writes in verse 30 Behold, behold. Pay attention. Are you watching this scene? Look at this scene. This is a striking scene. Two leaders, pillars of Israel's history, have now appeared in glory with Jesus and are chatting about him, of his mission that's going to be accomplished in Jerusalem. A couple side notes. Who do the crowd say that I am? Well, some think you're Elijah. I'm not Elijah because he's standing right here beside me. So we know that he's not Elijah. We also know there's no such thing as soul sleep, which some will say after death. Some will think that we die, and then in time and space, we just kind of fall asleep until Christ's second coming. We kind of sit in this unconscious soul sleep, But check this, Moses had died nearly 1,500 years ago. Elijah had not died, but had been taken up in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire about 900 years previously. And we now see them on this mountain in glory beside Jesus, not in some soul sleep on consciousness. It's not the main point of the passage, but it should really encourage our souls after death, we do not go to some unconsciousness. Our souls either go to heavenly glory or hellish torment. Then, at Christ's second coming, our bodies are resurrected and united with our souls for final judgment. We're all judged and either enjoy eternal joy with Jesus onto a new earth or we face eternal condemnation in hell. Do you wonder what happens after death? Do you know what happened to that that thief who cried out on the cross next to Jesus? Today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't go into soul sleep. It was paradise for this man who just had moments of faith. The Apostle Paul writes this to the Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better One of the old catechisms says this, we belong body and soul and life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So until the day of Christ's second coming to that great advent, know this, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our loved ones who've gone on before us, they are not lost. They've just gone ahead. And then one day we will all be resurrected with Christ at his coming. Those are side notes here. This is not the main teaching of this text. Jesus is the revelation of God, the fulfillment of God's promises, God's glory, our salvation. Do you not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets? I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus didn't so much, careful, he didn't so much negate the Old Testament, he fulfilled the Old Testament. It's not that we unhitch our faith and say, ah, we don't need to read that anymore. We read it because it points us to Jesus. So the entirety of our Bible is either pointing us to Jesus, showing us Jesus, explaining and interpreting Jesus to us, or showing us Jesus's second coming. The entirety of the scripture. So we don't unhitch our faith from the Old Testament because it teaches us more to love and treasure how he is the fulfillment of God's promises. Moses is the representative of the law. The covenant of God with his people. Jesus is the greater Moses, who establishes the greater covenant. Elijah is representative of the prophets, those who spoke God's word for faithfulness to the covenant. So Jesus is not merely a law giver, but Emmanuel, God with us. He's not merely a prophet, but he's God's word and wisdom incarnate. Jesus is the revelation of God and fulfillment of all God's promises for God's glory and our salvation. And it's going to be accomplished through suffering and death. I mean, I really wish I had a transcript of this conversation between he and Moses and Elijah. I mean, we, we sometimes think that the Old Testament saints, we just feel sorry for them, like, oh, they didn't get what we got. But they're looking from afar. And here is Moses, who he himself didn't get to go in the promised land because of his own sin. But he had the promises of God. He had communed with God like a friend, face to face. And he gets to see how God's going to work ultimate redemption and a greater exodus. Here's Elijah who battles the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. And here's the one, the greater Elijah, who's going to conquer evil by his death. Peter, John, and James, they could have been eavesdropping, but what were they doing? Sleeping. Verse 32, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Always asleep when Jesus is praying. Even in the garden. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them. We say stupid things when we first wake up. Don't, don't hold your friends or your spouse or your kids to what they say right when they're trying to wake up and rub the sleep out of their eyes. Because Peter says some stupid stuff right here. He's just, he's like, whoa. And this is a good day for a Jewish boy. For a Jewish guy, this is a great day. You've, you've left everything. You've left your father's business to follow this, this rabbi. And now on the mountain, you get to see Moses and Elijah. And so his first bumblings is, perhaps some scholars think they're trying to like, let's just do an ad hoc Feast of Tabernacles here. He's just let's do a tiny home community. We'll have a little house over here for Jesus and one for Elijah and one for Moses. But Jesus must go to Jerusalem and be rejected to suffer and to be killed. And Peter did not know what he was really saying. Look at verse 34. After Peter's flubbering suggestion, it's interrupted by a frightening cloud, which now envelops them. And from this cloud comes the voice of God the Father. This is a theophany, an appearance of God's glory. Mount Sinai was wrapped in a cloud. This is not the first time we've heard a voice from heaven in Luke's gospel. Chapter 3, when the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, Jesus is always praying. The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. both at his baptism to begin his ministry and now at his transfiguration, before he sets his face to Jerusalem, comes a divine word from heaven of affirmation and love. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I think if we realized our belovedness in God, in Christ, by God, that would change so much. Even as Thomas read in our call to worship, how we are blessed in the beloved. Ephesians 1. What are Peter, John, and James going to learn on this mountain? He had foretold of his suffering and death. They've now seen Moses and Elijah, but Jesus is greater still. He's God's son. Listen to him. This is what the voice t- says. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. We are to listen to Jesus. There's many voices, but who are we listening to? We can hear a lot of things audibly. We can go hear a bird chirping. But to listen is to know and follow, to Believe and obey. It's not just to have audible sound. Strike our ear canal and, and get thoughts in our head. It's to know and follow. This had, begun, this had been a great day. It was an invitation. Invite only. Only three of us are going up the mountain. Private time with Jesus. He transfigures bright. We see Moses and Elijah. But then comes this frightening cloud and the voice of God from heaven. This is a mountaintop experience. And we love them. We love mountaintop experiences. Our life, if I were to ask you, like, what are the, the days in your life that you can remember the day and what happened on it with joy and happy, happiness and remembrance? July 29th, 2007. I had just preached in a church in Harrisonburg, outside of Harrisonburg, Virginia. And then I had a mountaintop experience. Traveled up a little bit towards Luray and made our way up to a mountain home, the home of my cousin, and met my girls for the very first day. These bouncy little three and a half year old twins, and an 18 month old was a little skittish. Oh, how that would change. Um, <laughs> I remember the day. It it played, I can remember. It was a mountaintop experience, actually on a mountain. Moving experiences in worship, service of God, 1994 to 1995. Campus ministry, our friends would go everywhere. We'd go to different homes, go to different churches, special worship services. I mean, Friday nights, I mean, we were. Soaking prayer, like continual like worship? Everybody's got their guitar, we're just in living rooms? Man, I would have loved, I could just go and pitch a tent in a lot of those places and just live there. But here are some of the dangers of mountaintop experiences as we can start to trust our intuition rather than the Word of God. We can just start, our whims and wishes take precedence over the Word of God. We can focus on our feelings rather than on worship. We can actually start to worship worship rather than worshiping God. Some of you Presbyterians and Lutherans have no idea what I'm talking about. You Pentecostals or Charismatics, get me. And we can desire for euphoria rather than faithfulness. They couldn't stay there on the mountain. Moses and Elijah have already disappeared. Going back to God's presence, heavenly presence. Discipleship can happen on the mountain but ministry happens back down off the mountain. So, listening to Jesus means following and obeying wherever He leads, both up the mountain to learn from Him and then back down to do what He calls us to do. Come with me to verse 37 to this plain life. On the next day, they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met Him. And the, the day prior, the yesterday then, was glory on the mountain. And now we're coming down the mountain, and who greets Jesus and this trio? The great crowds, always just in need and in suffering. It just seems like yesterday was so long ago now because the crowds are pressing in. Quickly gone is communion with Moses and Elijah, hearing God's heavenly voice. Now there's a desperate father begging Jesus to heal his demon-tormented son, and the other non-disciples unable to do anything. It's just plain life in the suffering in this world, in this evil age. Jesus is back ministering in the chaos and suffering. And What must Peter, James, and John be thinking? Man, can we just go back up the mountain? It was easier yesterday. Yesterday was a good day. Should have stayed awake a little bit more, could have hurt a little bit more. But how are you tempted How are we tempted to scorn plain life for mountaintop experiences? Let me overgeneralize for just a minute. There's a naiveness that we have in our teenage years that can then become an idealism of our 20s that can then hit to a realism in our 30s that will then either hit to midlife crisis or to renewed faith. To despair or hope. Overgeneralization. It's not always in that decade, but I'm just generalizing here. And so now in my mid-40s, on the other crest, heading to 50, I've seen this place. There's nothing new under the sun. And ask some of our spiritual fathers and mothers here, and they'll tell you, Yep, I've lived through it, I've seen it. Is that we have a nativity in our teens? No, we're try, trying to get our bodies and our brains to function together. Then in our 20s, there's like, oh, we're going to change the world. We're going to be world history makers and everything. And in our 30s, like, I'm going to go back to the same job tomorrow. And in your 40s, you're like, ah, I'm so exhausted. There's really, there's so much suffering that can hit there. It it can hit earlier. It can hit later. But are we going to just go midlife crisis? Are we going to go renewed faith? Are, Are we wanting the mountaintop experiences? Or are we just, are we content with plain life? And it's the real trapping of a social media age in which so many believe that everyone else is living a perfect, happy life except you. Because everybody wants to stay on the mountain. Everybody else thinks everybody else is on the mountain. But fewer want to minister on the plain, in the valley where the life is plain and hardships are in the valley of the shadow of death. But this is where the need is, where the suffering is, is in the valleys and the plains. And This is where Jesus went back to. Jesus didn't tell them, get it all together and meet me halfway. He came all the way down into our suffering. He didn't scorn plain life in this fallen world, but he came in the valley of the shadow of death, born of a virgin in obscurity in small town Bethlehem. How much more plain can we get? And it's Jesus, in the, God in the flesh. Who is suffering here? A desperately scared father and a demonically tormented son. Read the scriptures. How many times do you see children who are suffering and parents who are desperate? Christian preach. The daughter of Jairus died. The nobleman's son of Capernaum. The daughter of the Canaanite woman. I'll take the crumbs off your table. The widow's son at Nain. Some of the most fervent petitions uttered on earth are the petitions of parents for their kids who are either suffering or lost. The thing is, we want the best for our kids. We want to provide for them. We want to protect them. We don't want them to make the mistakes we've made. We don't want them to make other mistakes. We don't want them to live in the the folly of childhood or the temptations of youth. We want them to exceed us in standard of living. We want them to exceed us in faith and faithfulness. But when they reject the faith, when they suffer in life, we're heartbroken and helpless and desperate for Jesus to save. And here is a father whose son, his only child, is tormented by a demon. Causes him to cry out, to violently convulse, to foam with the mouth. And Mark's gospel will tell us, throws him into fire. How have you seen children and youth suffer in this fallen evil world? terminal disease, drug addiction, domestic violence, sex abuse. Some of you are social workers. I mean, the stories you can tell. You just It's really plain life that you get to enter in every day. How have you been so desperate in prayer for children and youth to know the healing and salvation of Jesus? And so our God is a good and perfect Father who hears and answers the prayers of desperate parents. That's what the gospel shows us in the revelation of Christ. So don't allow a failing disciple keep you from Jesus. They had nine failing disciples who couldn't heal his boy. Even though at the beginning of chapter 9 Jesus gave them authority over all demons. He sent them out in pairs like go don't say just be light don't travel a lot. Just carry on luggage, just go and minister. And he gave them authority over demons. And those nine could not ex- exercise that authority now. Verse 41. Listen to Jesus here. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Chapter 9, verse 1. If you're there, he gave them power and authority over demons, and they cure diseases. But the nine who had not gone up the mountain were unable to heal the boy. So Jesus calls them, and he's, he's hitting the disciples and probably also the crowd, a t- faithless and twisted generation. That's because Jesus is the greater Moses leading in a greater exodus. And that phrase harkens back to exodus. You know the, the, the generation that did laps in the wilderness? Because they were faithless? They, wouldn't be, they didn't worship God who would deliver them? Jesus is not being mean-spirited here to disparage, but this is a truth and love exhortation called a repentance. Please, let's not make Jesus so nice and non-confrontational. He is bold and direct. And he's not going to let us just live in our sin. So faithlessness is not only a failure to obey Jesus, but to believe Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord? What would faithlessness be if we're ashamed of him and his words in public witness? Faithlessness would be like, well, I say Lord, but I still am wise in my own eyes and do my own thing. Do you believe that the gospel is the power of salvation? Romans 1, 1.16. Well, faithlessness would just Over time, just keep compromising God's word for our cultural sensibilities, personal preferences. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and changes heart? Yeah, faithlessness would, let's just organize church and do it in such a way that we can be successful. We could continue to look at the faithlessness, but on this occasion, he rebukes the Spirit and heals the boy. Don't, don't miss this. No longer is this boy under demonic torment. No longer is this father in desperate helplessness. I mean, the disciples are probably just want to get back up the mountain to glory, but this father is just so grateful, and this, this boy is just so free and liberated from the one who came to set the captives free. And what does this last verse say? They were all astonished at the majesty of God. In the two days of this passage, we see the glory of Jesus. Now it's easy to see on the first day because he's on a mountain and he's shining, dazzling white. But do you see the glory of the second day when he's in the valley of plain life and suffering in the valley of the shadow of death and he's bringing deliverance and freedom? Both are Glory. We can enjoy beloved communion with God on the mountain and retreat away. But he ministers to those in his suffering. And that is the glory of the kingdom of God. Faithlessness. They had what they needed to, authority from Jesus to live and minister in his name. Friends, on this side of the cross and on this side of Pentecost, we have an indwelling, empowering spirit And how much of our faithlessness is that we don't even believe that God will actually work in and through us to care for others. We're waiting for God to give us power. God, give us power that we can minister in your name. It's like I poured out my spirit. It's indwelling. It's gifted you. Avail yourself to what you already have in ministry to others. Jesus is the Son of God, the chosen majestic one who fulfills all of God's promises for God's glory and our salvation. He, and he alone, is the one that we're to listen to. To know and follow him, to believe and obey him. We thank God for mountaintop experiences if they draw us nearer to God. But how are we scorning plain life? Valley suffering. Do you wish that faith and life were more adventurous and more exciting and more fulfilling? And all the while, we may just be missing the everyday graces of God, the everyday plain opportunities to minister to others in their suffering. Everyone wants to be on the mountain. Fewer want to minister in plain life and in valley hardships. Friends, how do we need to repent of our faithlessness today? Jesus is God's beloved Son, the Chosen One. And for those with ears to hear, let us hear. Let's pray.